My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Ancient inhabitants of Turtle Island did not fare well in comparison to the new visitors. They were altogether held back from their proper place in this long history of America. After nearly 500 years of colonization, oppression, and massacre, their buried treasures are being now finally unearthed. Although not treasures of gold and silver, no, these are precious gems of wisdom. Nearly extinct, yet preserved for now in these prophetic times. The real history of Turtle Island will be known, and as a new consciousness emerges, here to help us anchor this eternal wisdom in the rapidly shifting present moment is Native American traditionalist, author, and artist, Lauren Jeffries, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss the real history of Turtle Island. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Lauren Jeffries. In the early 15th century, the Chinese emperor wanted to open China as the premier kingdom of the of the world and he had constructed a number of fleets a number of fleets of these huge barges that were made of many compartments so they they wouldn't sink there were huge ocean going barges compartments and hundreds of them and he he commissioned five eunuchs these huge men to go and map the world and also to take aboard all the emissaries and dignitaries and, and return them to Beijing. That was their mission. And they went and mapped the world, according to this story. And when Marco Polo returned, maybe somewhere around 1300, and the story spread of the Silk Road to China, the, the people around the Mediterranean wanted to go there. And both Venice and uh, Genoa were you know, fierce traders who wanted to get their hands on the goods from the Far East. Anyway, one of these Genovese guys 
His name was Niccolo Conte. He wanted to go to Cathay, or the Far East, via the Silk Road, as Marco Polo had done. But at that time, the Islamic world and the Christian world were in a bitter conflict. The Knights Timber were driven out, what, around 1307 or something like that? And the Christian countries were expelling non-Christians, not only believers in Islam, but Jews. And they were like Spain, for example, after Isabel and Ferdinand married and united their kingdoms, the smaller Christian kingdoms who were still holding out in the north united behind them and they pushed the Moors all the way out of Spain. And they made a decree that went into effect, by the way, in 1492, that you either had to convert to Christianity or leave because your life and property were forfeit after that date. And it's strange, it, it coincided perfectly with when Columbus sailed. Anyway, the the Christian countries were were threatening to, to kill, or imprison, behead Muslims and Jews. And the Islamic countries responded in the same kind of fashion. They had kicked the crusaders out of the Middle East or out of what, what is that Islamic land now or Israel. They, they would not let they would not let you into an Islamic country if you were not a believer in Islam. So in order to achieve passage, he renounced Christianity and became a Muslim. And so he achieved passage and he made his way through the Harappa Valley all the way to Calcutta, India. And it just happened to be when one of these barges, a fleet of these barges, was stopping there in India, in Calcutta. And they took him aboard and carried him back to Beijing, where he met the emperor of China. And there's this wonderful painting of this event where the emperor, who's the center of attraction of this painting, is standing there. Behind him are the five eunuchs, and these guys are huge guys, but they're, the emperor's really the main figure in the painting. But underneath his shoulder, he's like snuggled in his armpit, is this little Italian fellow, Nicolo Conte. And on the table spread before them is the map of the world. So here's this Genovese guy, and he has a map of the world and this is like 1992 or 1421, some place right in there. He has a map of the world, but he can't get back into a Christian country. And this dilemma was somehow, I don't know the details of how this was arranged, but he traded his map to the King of Portugal for admission back into a Christian country. And so the king of Portugal, whose son 
was was Henry the Navigator. They they had a map of the world. The Portuguese did eighty some eighty years before Columbus. This is before Columbus was born. This happened fifty years maybe before Columbus was born. So the the Portuguese had at least eighty years where they knew what the world looked like and they went and, and established colonies all around the world. They had a, three colonies in Antigua. They had a colony in Labrador. They had one in Rhode Island. They had them in the Philippines. And this is before people in Europe even knew the Philippines existed. Absolutely, yes. Well, then it's then it's all happening. <laughs> What's the question? Well, we've had a few conversations so far, and uh, and I've gotten to know you quite a bit. I just want to, before I ask you to share a little bit about yourself for the audience, I want to I want to tell you a short story that connects to how you and I connected. Okay. So, so my podcast, which is titled My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, this was created right around the summer of 2020. And at that point in my life, I was a delivery driver. I had been a delivery driver for quite a few years, not just for Amazon, where I was at that point in time, but for bakeries and restaurants, I pretty much became a career delivery driver. And on my deliveries, I started to soak in the landscape and really keep my eyes open to what was around me here in Connecticut. And, you know, certain omens would appear, certain animals. And I had already been familiar with a lot of this stuff lightly from my reading and from things that I'd learned about after I had left school, which I had dropped out of college after a series of experiences with a Native American friend of mine named Amos, who comes from Arizona. And he basically informed me about Geronimo's desecration and how his skull and crossbones were residing in the tomb at Yale University. So that was that was one of many eye-opening experiences. In the skull and bones uh, fraternity. Right. Yeah. If you if I may please let me ask you about what you just said there. Are you talking about a second sense that came upon you early. I, I, I was trying to, to, what do you call it, empathize with what you were saying there. And I remember when I was young, like when we would be traveling, we, when we would go to the country on the weekend and we would you know drive for an hour or two, a couple of hours to the country then. And... I had this strange sense of what am I doing here in this glass and steel box rolling, uh, going down this asphalt snake. When I belong over there, 
in the trees, in the bushes. <laughs> that I had, I, I started to build, when we had stopped at a gas station, it smells awful. It smells poison. It's not the, it's not the world that I know, you know? So I started developing this sense, the second sense of I was someone else than this, you know, extracted petroleum and, and cars and glass and that world, huh? Mm. Are, are you talking about anything similar to that? Oh, absolutely. And I had, I had that sense, I think, from a young age. I mean, you couldn't pull me out of the forest when I was a kid. I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a neighborhood where there was a considerable amount of trees and forest, and I was just a wild kid my whole life. So, yeah, I, I had a, a second sense, and that's kind of what drew me to meet Amos in the first place and how he planted that seed of information about this Yale university. And then as I'm a, a bakery delivery driver, I'm driving around and things are sort of pulling me back in that direction towards, you know, learning about skull and bones or, or maybe even going into certain buildings and, and getting, you know, access to things that the average person or curious minded person wouldn't have access to. Then when Thank I, you. Go ahead. Pardon me. I hate to interrupt you. That's right. <laughs> Did you walk the fields and, and pick up arrowheads and like that? I regret to say I've never found an arrowhead in the wild. I, I mean, I don't know. Ooh, yeah, wow. I, I don't know. I, I always have chalked that up to to being in Connecticut and, and just having so many people before me looking for arrowheads, you know, maybe if I was out West somewhere where there's less, you know, separation between that time and now, I mean, you got to think the last people to, to shoot arrowheads like that in the, in the woods around here was almost 400 years ago. So, you know. well, hey, hey, hey. Uh, I, I think a place that are 10,000 years old uh, I don't think I have. I don't think I ever picked one up in Connecticut, but just about from every other state. Hmm. Uh, well, they, I, they, they come to me like a magnet or something. I, or I go to them. I haven't cultivated that that one yet, and I, I do. I do. I do hope to. I mean, yeah, that's been a, a, a hope of mine, wandering around to to find a an arrowhead. But no, usually we'll find some neat banded stones you know with quartz banded on them or their little neat omens like that but no no arrowheads regrettably no but it well, was you you talk about you talk about driving around in your bread truck and and noticing the land mm, well yeah I, this since when just as a young person that i would be drawn to a place where maybe where someone would sit or a, an overhang where you might have shade and, or you, and then you might also have it for defense or, or a little mound in the land where maybe you could see a little further, something about it, huh? A place that had of its own, the, 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 I don't know, geo, what, what is the, the, the geo characteristic anyway, that, in those places, you know, I would be drawn to a place where someone 
had utilized that space and and sure enough you, you dig around and you know a couple of a couple of scratches through the dust and there they are right there and and that happens to me or used to happen to me all the time some really dramatic ones I found one in Wyoming that was ten thousand years old of this uh, this the stone was petrified in in trans translucent and, and it, was, it was petrified root growing in this clear quartz you know so and and, and the style was 10,000 years old so oh, yeah they're still there only 400 years since Connecticut and we know they were there uh, you should have been walking the fields there but uh, <laughs> maybe all picked over by the, by this time well so it used to be here in Kentucky hmm yeah, Kentucky I, and Ohio, just full of it. You can't you can't kick a kick a rock without coming up with some chips in these areas, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know I could just be, you know, I'm pretty tall, Lauren, so maybe it's hard for me to see them uh, all the way from up here. But uh, well, you you may not be oriented to you know your your medicine may be different, and that's okay. Well, you know what? Anyway, I'll tell you. I interrupted. I interrupted you. You go ahead with your story. Okay. Yeah. And I don't want to keep this story going for too long because I have a lot of questions for you, but it does seem like I've gravitated towards feathers just based on certain experiences I've had with my friend Amos, a mentor of mine of sorts, who... Feathers? Yeah. Well, one... one on one occasion when I was very young, right around the time that I was in college and I, I dropped out of college my sophomore year. So I was only in college briefly from 2013 to 2014. And uh, I had this meditation experience in my backyard where I was sitting in a clearing in the forest and the sun was shining bright down on my chest. I didn't have my shirt on. I was meditating and I experienced what I could only describe as a whiteout. I, I don't call it a blackout because my vision, my eyes, you know, my my behind my eyelids was not black. It was flooded with this bright white light and it was almost timeless. And when I sort of opened my eyes from that experience, there was a red-tailed hawk feather floating on the tall grass in the clearing and uh, I picked it up and I showed it to my friend Amos and he said, brother, this is a sign that you're a true human being. He said, I, I said a prayer about you, you know, and yeah. And, and, and he, you know, he, he had to sort of vet me to some degree cause we met in this public space in downtown New Haven. So that was one of, of a few signs that kind of confirmed his trust in me and, and we've been friends ever since, but I understand what you're saying, and I think that's uh, that's marvelous. Well, thank you. Yeah, and and I, you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. are not ready to receive what you're talking about. I know, I know. I was working with some young people here who who wanted. I mean, when I came back to to Louisville here. There were people who had this, you know, who wanted this connection, who had some 
Indian ancestry, and these things were talking to them too, but they didn't have a teacher. They, they had never been taught. And, and there's a great chasm there between them and their past, huh? So, but there was a longing for it. So anyway, I remember I'd been working with these people and I told them things like about the mountain boys. I told them that, you know, the eagle and the hawk and the bear and the mountain lion, we call these the mountain boys. And they'll watch us. And when you, when you reach a point where you need something, you need something that for, for the spirit world, for your, for your journey on it, they will see that. They know this and they will see it and they will provide it. Now, that sounds like a tall tale and a, a fairy story to many ears. Huh? But I, I, I had told this girl this, and, or this woman this, and she told me, she said, I, uh, I had my son out with me, my little, my little boy, and I was cutting willow for, to make hoops, to make dream catchers. And I had my son sitting down by, beside the stream with me in the, in the willow trees. And I was cutting willow and I was putting down tobacco like you taught me. And I told him, you know, don't, don't just take these things and cut them. You know, go to the grandmother there, the grandmother will, and talk to her and tell her, you know, you're not just hacking at her children, but you, you, you ask permission and, and express some gratitude and respect for their nation, huh? for, for, her, for her young and make prayer for their continued existence. And you might even talk about, you know, how, what you share and how these, these, these hooks you're talking about are going to, how, how that will, is a interchange with the willow people, huh? Hmm. How, how, how we interchange with what that dream catcher means and how that might help someone. Anyway, she said she was putting down tobacco. And her little boy asked her what she was doing. And she said, she looked up and there sat a hawk looking at her. And she said, you know, tears came into her eyes. And her little boy said, mommy, why are you crying? So I know, I know, you know, what brought those tears to her eyes was realizing that those words that I said were true, that this really happens. Huh? <laughs> A lot of people aren't ready for that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I I delayed the, the process, you know. All of those experiences with Amos happened almost 10 years ago for the most part, and, you know, I had my vision quest, so to speak. <laughs> I took my myself up this mountain in New Haven that the local uh, Massowet tribe considered the body of a giant. I don't know <laughs> how true that is. You know, the Europeans like to kind of color their stories with European myths. But, but either way, I find out later that the, the mountain where I had done this sort of vision quest for myself 
was a, a sacred place to the to the natives who lived here once in the past. Surprise. Surprise, surprise. You know, right. we, we all think that we fell out of the sky yesterday and this is all new and our But either way, you know, it was it wasn't until and I think you said this to me last time we talked, hindsight's twenty twenty. It wasn't until later on that I realized all of that and what I was kind of intuitively following. And, and even still, you know, two, three years ago when I was working as an Amazon delivery dry, driver, the, the landscape was calling me. You know, I was noticing things that I had never seen before. The stones, the trees, the red-tailed hawks that would swoop by my van and, you know, stand in the trees above me, you know, always keep my eye out for them and, and <laughs> them keeping their eye on me. And I eventually just broke down and said, why am I working this job? that, you know, isn't, <laughs> isn't, you know, fulfilling what I really want to be doing. Cause at that point I had listened to so much podcasts as a driver, you know, I had all the time in the world to go and listen to whatever I wanted. I had listened to so much podcasts that I was like, all right, it's my turn to talk. Let me get the talking stick, you know, and that's what I'm doing now. And it's, it's really worked out great. And, and when I finally had the freedom of that choice of, working and living for myself and my own, you know, means and my own goals and my own passions, these books started appearing in my life. The first one appeared at Woodstock in New York, where I've learned that there's a sort of energy vortex. There's also the Catskill Mountains there that are very sacred to the tribes that lived in that area. And in this, you know, sort of kitschy cliche hippie town woodstock they have this pretty rock solid bookstore and uh, funny enough that's where i found spirit in the stone which taught me about the manitow for the first time and how this sacred ceremonial stonescape was all around us here in new england and across you know north america these cairns and standing stones, stone chambers, perched boulders and mounds, stone mounds, shell mounds, and all of these hidden aspects of the landscape that I didn't realize were so close. You know, when I think mounds, I think the serpent mounds, I think Cahokia, I think I got to get in on a plane or, you know, irradiate myself on a, on a train just to get to it. But... Uh, but no, they're all right here in our own backyard. So with that in mind, I guess that's kind of how you and I became acquainted, thanks to our mutual friend Al, because, you know, I've been fascinated with trying to explain these stone structures and what it seems to be is a sort of maybe a continuation of, of multiple cultures and not just one culture, you know? I, I don't think... I'm glad that you said this. Uh, I'm, this. I'm glad. I'm glad you said this. It's a... Your friend Amos, uh, what he said, it, this indicates that you're ready for... You're ready for this journey. And it's ready for you. And I'll tell you something else. That place where you are, Connecticut, when I was... Uh, when I was going through college, I worked at a, as a, well, I started working there as an arts and crafts counselor, but 
I soon became a canoe counselor there because I had a passion for that instrument and of it. Anyway, I was working as a as a canoe counselor, and we had I had these boys out in Algonquin Park, and we had come down this stream one morning or river, and and we had to take out and portage our canoes over to a lake over the mountain or another piece of water, you know? So we were portaging these canoes. The counselors carried the canoe and the heavy pack, and the boys each carried their own gear and their paddle. So we're, we're pointing the, these canoes through little trees and pushing them apart to get our canoes up the, the mountain to come down to the next piece of water. And so we're carrying these. We had paddled all morning, and we were carrying our canoes down, and we were coming down a, uh, a rock stream that was mostly dried out. But in the bedrock of this limestone stream bed, and this was in, I believe, I believe this was in New Hampshire, this was in Algonquin Park. I believe this was in New Hampshire, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Anyway, we're coming down this, this uh, limestone stream bed, and there were these little round pools of standing water. And they were perfectly round, or more or less round. I mean, they weren't, they weren't all set. They were round. And they were full of standing water. And in the dry stream bed, it was unusual. And we were hot and uh, tired. And I thought, well, I'll just call a little lunch break here. And I'll go stick my feet in one of these, the cool water in one of these these holes. And so we did. And we had our lunch there. And, gee, I think all I was wearing was jeans and it. Maybe I had tennis shoes too, but I'd taken those off. And I had my feet dangling in the in the pool about, oh, I don't know, three or four feet, maybe four, four feet in diameter. And uh, it might even been a little bit bigger than that. Anyway, uh, I, I, my feet couldn't touch the bottom. I, 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 I had my knees, my toes dangling there. And then I, I edged off the seat there and dropped down into the water, and still my feet didn't touch the bottom. And uh, so I was curious, and I guess I was pretty bold when I was a young person like that. I just did a duck dive and dived down to the, to investigate the bottom. How deep is this? And so I went down about 15 feet, <laughs> my estimation, and my hands felt at the bottom, and what I felt was, well, these round stones. And instantly in my mind, oh, I'm 15 feet underwater, and it's dark all around, and I, I, and I get my hands full of these stones from the bottom. And it, it rushes through my mind that these are stones from higher up the mountain. This is granite from higher up the mountain. Well, I didn't know that they were granite yet, but I realized that it was stones from up the mountain that in coming down had been caught in a swirl 
and been trapped there for thousands of years. And and in, in, in when the water rushed, the stones would tumble just enough for them to tumble themselves in a natural tumble, tumble themselves round. And all that went to my mind underwater. It all went to my mind about time and and how something how something like that goes from a mountain to a to a round spherical ball. This is an act of nature. But these things were captured there and and, and tumbled. And and this is really energizing thought. And so I came I came shooting out of that hole. Like I mean I didn't I, I didn't stop to climb out. It was like I just shot out of that hole and I looked at the, at, at the stones I had in my hand and there was a a blue one, a pink one, an orange one, a brown one. But my very favorite was one the size of a rifle ball. And it was black granite. It looked like a rifle ball. And uh I think I carried that one with me for years, but I always had those. Those are my medicine. Here's what I got from that: that these stones were 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 living proof of this is time, huh? These things have gone from the condition they were in as jagged rocks on the mountain top and being frozen for thousands of years before they started their journey down the mountain. And in that process, the the thousands of years that it took, I mean, the, the, at 15 feet deep, this water is not going to swirl unless it's really going fast. And even when it's going fast, these stones are only going to move a little bit. And the thousands of years that it took to turn these things into rifle balls and tennis balls and, 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 and marbles, Anyway, it, it was such powerful medicine to my mind. Did I have problems after that? Yeah, I did. But I would hold these stones and realize these things are temporary. These these problems you have are, you know, they're, they're farts in the wind. Hmm? You have here on your hand the time. Huh? And so those those stones were medicine for me, and and I remember, I remember I shared, I shared this story with someone one time, a woman one time. She was troubled, and 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 I asked her me, and so I told her this story, and as I told her, I fetched that little stone out of my pocket and took it out of its little pouch and put it in her hand and had her hold it while I told the story. And so when I'd finished telling her the story, her problems weren't so much either. And do you know it was that woman and that it was that act of kindness on my part, but it was that woman and her husband who took me to Sedona where I met my teacher. Huh? Yeah, I met my medicine man down there in the Sedona where this couple, the, the, the girl that I'd shared this with, they took me there against my will at the time, but that's how that goes too. Yeah, that's how I met my teacher. 
So the, the way of the medicine path is uh, is a mysterious one, but I think you're on it. Well, thank you. I'll try not to get a big head about that coming from you. I mean, geez, I appreciate it. You know, Lauren, I I hate to to object to your wonderful or for time, but here's something that really struck me about your story because it's it lines up with something that we've found in our research. And this is just speculation, so I'd love to hear your opinion, but I found those potholes, okay, that you're describing in, in riverbeds. There's yeah. one there's one it's well known along the Susquehanna River. There's, I think they are, they're called the Falmouth Stones down there in Pennsylvania. Say that again. The, the, in, in this, along the Susquehanna River, there's a site. They're called the what? <laughs> Fall, Falmouth, Falmouth, not Falmouth, Falmouth. <laughs> oh, they're called Falmouth. Yeah, Falmouth Stones. And there's another, there's another, place up here in Connecticut called Kent Falls that has mm-hmm. those same potholes and then Shelburne Falls which is a historic meeting place of the Mohawk and several other tribes from that region Shelburne Falls has those same potholes too and my friend Michael Wan you know pointed these out when he was showing us around the Susquehanna River area and he said yeah you know it's a mystery I don't know how those things form they say water does it but I don't know because there were hundreds of these potholes at this particular site now that being said the Susquehanna River is allegedly according to geologists and, and other types like that Susquehanna is the oldest river in the world, possibly. So that's a lot of time for those potholes to form. Now, all of that in mind, I had, like you, thought that it could be the water. It must be the water, right? Now, I interviewed a gentleman who lives in Panama, and what he described to me was wandering through the jungle on a, a... perfectly nice pleasant day and all of a sudden they had been you know overdraft clouds rushed in and they had to take shelter there was a lightning storm so they take shelter in this cave behind a waterfall okay and this is important Mm -hmm. this is an important aspect to the story the fact that they're in this shelter behind the waterfall and what this gentleman who was on my Mm -hmm. podcast told me is that he witnessed lightning striking the the rocky banks of this waterfall river basin and forming a pothole right before his eyes. And he said at the bottom of the pothole was a round stone, like the lightning had gravitated towards a specific type of stone or some part of that stone like that maybe had iron in it or something that attracted lightning and created a, a round sphere right before his eyes. So... After I heard that story, it made me think, you know, maybe these potholes are being caused by lightning and the the waterfall, you know, generates some sort of electrical, you know, energy or atmosphere that attracts lightning to strike in that area. Nonetheless, if, if what you found in that pothole was ancient lightning created 
crystals, I mean, that's even more fantastic. I mean, what are the odds that lightning strikes, you know, like that to create those fantastic colors? Either way, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's still a marvelous thing to come across. Well, yes, and indeed, I underline that a few times, and, and let me add to, let me add to this. I, I, there's a reason why I told you this story, so you could tell me this one. Huh? Now I know more about you know this big medicine, and and that's 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 what I want to say to you. That you talk about like there is a huge gap in 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 distance and in time from what you're looking for. No, it's all around you right now. Like it for me that day to 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 go away from there with big medicine in my pocket. This was has been big medicine in my life, huh? These are teaching teaching tools and, and powerful when I hold them, you know? Right. I, like I might the hair stands up on my on my arms and, and runs up and down my spine when I hold these things. They it, they make my they make my spirit tingle. They're big medicine. And and you're you are approaching this too. Be careful. This is big medicine. But God bless you, young man. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. now that we've kind of gotten into the flow of the synchronicities, I, I did tell you in one of our previous conversations about the bird stone that I found, the giant boulder shaped oh, like yeah. a Oh, yeah, you sent me that picture, and I looked at that. Yeah. Is that a goose head? I believe so. I mean, it, I kind of think of it as a, a great blue heron, and I'll tell you another story. A year before discovering this bird stone, my girlfriend and I were traveling down the road, and I saw a great blue heron, you know, these tall stork-like birds, struggling on the side of the road and I thought oh we better pull over and see if this thing's okay so we get out of the car and you know obviously birds don't like humans so he tried to get as far away from me as he could but I noticed his knee was was broken he must have gotten hit by a car his his leg was nearly turned around at the joint so I chased him into the thickets and kind of had him underneath a bush and I'm crawling on my hands and knees and I yelled to my girlfriend to grab a towel out of the car and we put a nice towel around him, kept his wings safe and put him in the car. Next thing I know, I'm holding a, a bird with a oh, nearly three foot wingspan in the back seat of my, you know, <laughs> passenger car, you know, not a very big car. I'm sitting in the back of my Nissan Sentra with with this bird with a you know nearly one foot long beak and we were trying to figure out a where we could take a bird like this because it's not a pet excuse me just a moment if you would sure are you there mark yes so we're driving through north connecticut trying to figure out where we're gonna bring this giant bird to to get his knee fixed and luckily there was a a little place called Stony Creek Farms that uh, had a, a person named Hawk, of all names, who was there and, and found a cage for it and was able to take care of it and, and, you know, call, I guess, the Audubon Society the next day. But, you know, that just, you know, act of, of goodwill and care for this animal, you know, taking a, a very special creature and helping protect it, 
and then you know just kind of going on our way not <laughs> expecting any great award for this you know next the next year we find this birdstone i i somehow think that's connected so when i look at the birdstone i think of a of a heron in flight the way a heron's beak kind of pokes out over its uh sort of snake like coiled neck you know how their their neck kind of goes like a pelican when they're flying it kind of bundles together so i see a, a, a heron when i look at the birdstone and the birdstone happens to be not too far from where that heron was flying around so so yeah that's that's my take on it and it's aligned with this Hamanasset line, an alignment of stone structures spanning from Long Island through Connecticut up through New York and into the Great Lakes. And uh, and yeah, it's just fascinating because this whole side of Native American culture, for the most part, has gone undocumented up until very recently in the past 30 or 40 years. There's been a few books coming out documenting how these stones are astronomically aligned, just like the mounds are. And they have different properties to them, possibly electromagnetic properties to them that would make them not just statues, but actual devices that would be useful for multiple purposes. <coughs> what do you think of that, Lauren? I mean, we, we have, we have a, a show where I give the, the intro ahead of time. So people kind of have a, an idea of who you are, but this is one of your areas of expertise, can I say? I mean, when, when we're talking about this sort of pre-Columbian world, and I guess that's where I kind of want to segue into is, is who you are, how you sort of got interested in learning all this, and, and why this is, is very important to you. Well, can't, let me say a few words about, about what we've been talking about. Sure. I'm really glad that our conversation went this way. It tells me so much about you, and I'm thrilled to learn that you are open uh, to these crazy things, if you will, <laughs> and uh, listening to them. And it sounds to me as though that you are on the medicine path, and what you will be your medicine will be nothing like well, I don't know, but I do not expect it to be like my own. I did not know that these things were, were medicine to me or, or that I would carry this with me and these things would help me in my life and I would recognize them to be that way, but I want you to recognize, you know, take, take notice of these things, like whether it is a tool or an understanding or you, you don't know how that's going to come back and interact with you. But just in the act of of knowing the power of that stone and how it would make me peaceful, the vibration of that stone would take away my problem. I put it in this girl's hands and or this woman's hands and the power of that stone probably more than my words, but the understanding she had, she was all calmed down when she put it back into my hand and determined that I was going to be their guide. And so they demanded that I go with them to this place where psychics go. And I told her, no, no, I cannot go. I, I can't be around folks like that. They go and come in the door. I have to go out the back. I can't be around psychics, and, and I don't want to meet anyone like that. And, and they told me, well, 
just come along and be there with us. You can hide in the closet. You don't have to meet anybody, but we want you there with us. And, and it was, it was sitting in those rocks. Huh? It was sitting in the rocks of Sedona where the message came to me. The rocks spoke to me, in fact, and told me, I had asked, can I pick up a few pebbles like this and stick it in my pocket? I don't want to take them like a thief. Is it okay if I take a few of these pebbles so then I can I can I can put my hand upon the piece that I feel here? And the voice came back out of the rocks. Take all you want, but bring my children home. And I looked around like whoa whoa where did that come from? And I I, I went around for days wondering well what does that message mean? Bring my children home. And when I left there. I knew that I was going to come back and be a teacher there. And and indeed, 13 months later, I got a letter from the federal government. We want you to come and teach over here. We got a job for you. And that's how medicine is powerful. Medicine to change your life and, and regard it like that. It's, when you carry medicine, you, you're, you, you're dealing with real uh, life-changing things. Huh? Mm. And everybody's not ready for that, but it, it sounds to me like you were on that path. And I wish you well. There was something else I wanted to say, but I forgot. Oh, yeah. In my hand, I hold a, right now, I hold a fan. You were talking about your special feather. Are you, have you, have any others come to you like that? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have several more feathers now. I mean, so many, uh, it looks like I own a bird. <laughs> well, I think the, the fan that I'm holding now, it is a dream, not a dream. It is a song catcher. And these, these songs that I sing, uh, the way they talk about it, that you have to catch these songs. And I've caught a few of them. And, and I'm still doing so. And maybe you will make yourself a song catcher as well. But maybe you're not ready to sing songs. That's okay. Feathers. Stones and feathers are part of my medicine. Mm. How about when you first sang? Was there, was there a time when, when the feathers sort of compelled you to sing or, or did that come to you afterwards This sort of connection between singing and, and the feathers? Well, I'm an earthy person and, and that's why I can put these stones in my hand and feel them. I was not gifted in the, I don't know whether my sister was cleaning out my ear with a bobby <laughs> pin and pierced my eardrum. Sometimes that's, what I tell myself or what they told me, it's an excuse for not having good hearing. I don't hear the tones. And so I was not, I, I am not a good singer and, and never was, but it was through these feathers. It was through these feathers that that medicine came to me because I can sing some songs now and there, or, you know, where that came from. I caught those songs. I caught those songs. I heard them. I caught them. And uh, I'm still doing it. Uh, a song, song catcher 
is a loose feathered fan. Uh, but you, maybe you're not, maybe you're not quite yet ready for that. Maybe you are. I think, I think it's, it's not an accident that we met at this time. Yeah, I, I would say so. Is there anything that precipitated our meeting on your end that adds to that feeling? I'll have to think on that. Well, that's fine. I did want to ask you about, you know, medicine and, and if we can expand on that, because there is this sort of, you know, compulsion in the colonial mindset, the scientific materialist worldview to, to think of what you're describing there as some sort of talisman and that the objects themselves alone are powerful and, and it's just sort of the luck of whoever finds these objects that determines this sort of magic when I think it's way more complex and, and sort of simple in a nuanced kind of way. The idea that medicine is not some sort of talisman and it can it can take the form of that or it can act through an object or a living being like a feather or or, or a stone because i i don't consider those objects i would consider those living beings but uh, but when it comes to something like a canoe as you were describing before is there a certain medicine someone can let's say have attached to something like a canoe something maybe people would think of more for its use rather than its its form all of those things this you're talking about the electromagnetic spectrum now mm. and by the way on that subject i asked my teacher this Ojibwe fellow, Pat Hendrickson was his name. I asked him one time, what is it? What is it with the feather? And he, he, he told me it is like the quartz crystal. It, it's used in the same way. Uh, you asked something else about the medicine that I wanted to address. You see, the kids I had with me, they, they go down in these holes and they retrieve these stones too. But, you know, they threw them into the lake and, and they threw them away as if they were garbage. They were no value to them. They put no value on them. And today, they do not have them. Huh? Mm -hmm. Nor do they have the kind of medicine that, it, that has come to me, the, the subtleties of, of understanding and, I mean... Changing your life, where you open up new doors in your life, and and, and that's big medicine. Huh? Uh, things that that will carry you, that uh, where kindnesses that you perform will carry you into another world and change dimension. It's big medicine. Yeah, but everybody will. Someone else would not recognize it as that. Huh? This is this is for you, and it's personal. And, and by the way, I'm probably saying too much. I'm not supposed to say these things. You know, they tell us over there, don't go back over there and tell these people what you saw here, and, and they don't need to know. And, and if you do tell them, here's what will happen. The next time you see it, only part of it will be what you said. And the rest of it will be the way they think about it. 
and they will put their stamp on on it. And then when you see it again, you won't even recognize it. Your 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 culture, your your way is gone. They have they have established it and put it in, and that's why they tell us not to write this down huh? or take pictures of our sacred ceremonies. Huh? <laughs> I've even read that there's there's an argument to be made that during the initial period of colonization after Columbus, the official colonization, that the Puritans, just by standing in witness with their judgment, would make certain shamanic rituals not work as well because, you know, their skepticism sort of was clouding the energy because belief is powerful. I mean, Lynn McTaggart is a, a scientist, a psychologist who's put together, you know, this power of eight study where it only takes eight people focusing on the same thing to create a physical tangible effect that's measurable in, in, you know, these very rigorous, almost unhuman uh, test scenarios. But yeah, it's, it's demonstrated that humans together create this sort of consensus reality. And, and I, I sympathize, I empathize with that. And I, I don't want to disturb that, you know, in, in a, in a way I have a lot of respect that supersedes my, my curiosity because, well, there, there's only so much that, that can be done now at this point. And, and I don't know if I'm the, the man to, to decide, <laughs> right? So yeah, You have caution, and, and you don't just jump ahead and, and before you think this, this through. Using some discretion, this is, a, this is a part of wisdom. And maybe that, that's another sign that it, maybe you are ready for this. Huh? Yeah, it has to scare you a little bit for you to have the proper respect for it. Well, certainly, you know, and, and I, I see the people that listen to my show and for the most part, well, they're all well-meaning and, and intelligent individuals who are curious like me. There are some people that fall afield a, a from that, but uh, for the most part, they're good people. And even then, you know, broadcasting to this message to, to the small, well-meaning audience that I have, it, it's it's risky in the sense that I've been very honest and generous about my life experiences and I've feared the same thing because Amos has warned me about that about you know how much you share with other individuals and how that can kind of weaken your individual potency or power and yeah yeah. that's not to say that we need to be greedy with our with our kindness or, or things like love but with certain skills yeah and medicine certainly it's a very private matter so yeah i i have respect for that and i appreciate you sharing well mark uh, i am i am speaking to you now i'm speaking to you huh Mm. and i didn't i wasn't mindful of the idea well there are a lot of people listening who don't need to hear that and Maybe I should save those words for you and when we're alone. Yeah, there are times when you should use some discretion and not say too much. And perhaps I've already 
done so. I, I know on the res, you know, sometimes someone will get drunk and start running their mouth and someone will go over to them and say, hey, you uh, you said enough, go home now. Uh, when, uh, like, for instance, uh, here's a, an example of it. Uh, a, a young man, was he was had been drinking some alcohol and he started telling these these white people about what do they call it? Uh, what do they call that rock? Well, I forget what they call the rock, but he was explaining to them that that rock is—it's uh, a monster from from this age that the uh, the twins slew, and that's what it's a place there in New Mexico. Oh, it's not window rock. It's uh, well, anyway, he was ex- he was telling these people. Uh, you know, from something from the stories that 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 was really the the remains of a a creature they had they had slain there, and uh, you know, people went over to him and told him, "You you 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 don't need to be telling them this. You go on home now." You know, so maybe I should be mindful. There are ears out there, and it's it's not your readiness to hear these things does not mean. Everyone is, and I should be mindful of who I'm talking to, and I don't know who's listening. <laughs> Maybe I should shut up and go home, eh? <laughs> oh well, I I think we can uh, we can tread that line respectfully, and and maybe talk about things that you you feel more comfortable sharing when it comes to the Americas. There's a there's a whole hidden history that, for the most part has been checkered by biased sort of racist views, right? And not all all the time. There were, you know, people who, like Roger Williams, who allied with the Narragansett and created the state of Rhode Island, a, a sort of heretics colony. But for the most part, a lot of what we get as Native American history is propagandized by the views of the colonists who came here. So with that in mind, it's a really great opportunity for us to possibly discuss some of the pre-Columbian history here, because that's, I think, helpful okay. Helpful for people to sort of realize if they're, if they're lying to us about that, they're probably lying to us about everything, this United States government and the other. Well, you know, that's the way we are. It's not just our government, but that's the way, that's the way it is. Or that's the way history would, would seem. This is the nature of, um, of the mechanics of, of, of being a human being. Um, being a five-fingered being is a most marvelous gift, but it it has there are in, what do you say intrinsic weaknesses there, and, and and one of them is this power to exercise this how do you say a greed uh, a lust uh, power. It, it's a uh, it's a a magnetic. It's a, it, it charms us like a charm. It calls to us like the like the ring in in 
it was a Gollum, uh, the the guy who had the ring and oh, Schmeagol, yeah, yeah, Schmeagol. Yeah. Huh? His name was Schmeagol. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's been 40, 50 or 60 years ago, maybe. I don't remember it so well. Yeah, maybe 60 years ago. But that, that, that sort of thing, it it, uh, it charms us like a, like the song of a, the tune of a snake charmer or, or a, uh, what, are, what are these, what are these guys, the uh, hypnotists? Yeah, mesmerizer. The what do they call that? MK Ultra and MK oh, yeah. Delta. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We are entrained. Well, yeah, and and I appreciate you you saying that, and I think that human beings, for the most part, we've been left in or made to be in a state of amnesia about our origins, and and given propaganda in replacement of the truth it's it's not it's not so much that here's here's the here's the thing it is the the guys who win the battle who get to go back and tell the stories or the the songs that are written about the heroes of these of these things they're writing those for the people who won Huh? Mm. They're 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 going to be sung to them and heard by them, so they honor them, and even drop out the negatives and enhance the the politics. So the tendency to exonerate those in power and tell the story their way, even if all of it's not true, this has prevailed over a, how should we say, an even balance look at, at, at what really happened. So, you know, when, whether you know this or not, but you ever hear of, what was her name, Catherine the Great? Mm. You know who Catherine the Great was? Yeah. You know how she died? Wasn't she taken on the wheel? Didn't they put her across the wheel, or am I thinking of a different Catherine? I think you're thinking of a different Catherine. <laughs> okay. No, but how'd she I die? That, well, they told the people that she died in a riding accident. But if you go and, and dig up the, the, do the research on this, she started out with her father, the czar with his generals, with the general staff. And she went through them and worked her way down to the uh, colonels and majors and captains and on down to the lieutenants. And then she even went to the enlisted men's quarters. But that didn't satisfy her either. And she finally went to the stables and uh, I guess she was familiar in growing up with the what they would do to breed the horses. Huh? They they had a, a something built where they could breed the stallion without the mare getting hurt. Huh? You know what I mean? <laughs> so 
she they built the machine for she had a machine built to hold the the horse so that she could copulate with it and the the machine broke and it crushed her to death but that's not what went out in the papers that's not what the the Russian people could tell the world it was too damned embarrassing and it was political dynamite because, well, even at that time, the people were in a revolutionary mood. So anyway, the maybe the, the what do you say, the exigencies of the situation demanded that they tell a lie, but we have an inclination to do that. I mean, I don't know whether you know or not, and, and I don't know, but it, it is my belief um, from what I do know or think that I know that John Wilkes Booth did not kill Abraham Lincoln and neither did Lee Harvey Oswald kill JFK and in fact the Jonestown people did not kill themselves and I could go on and on and on with the different examples of this, but the story that we've been given is given, some of it is an outright lie, and some of it is to save our image, our self-image, and save us embarrassment. Mm. But, there's yeah, there's been a whole lot of cleaning up the photo, retouching the photo. That's, that's what our history that's what our history, I mean, to me, I know all of these different aspects of history that don't match with what they say in the books. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an industry today. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you what, I had not expected us to get to uh, Catherine the Great being screwed to her death by a horse. Jeez, uh, Lauren, you're full of surprises. I got to tell that to Dr. Richard Spence, who we had on the show recently talking about uh, the Russian Revolution and Russian spies. Maybe that had something to do with the revolution it's over there. Richard Spence? Yes. You know Ask him if he, I, 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 it seems to me that maybe I know him. Okay. You have a question you'd like me to ask him? Where is he from? Is that Cherry Valley? Where? Where is he from? I don't know where he's from. I know he's a professor at Idaho. He was a professor at Idaho University, but uh, but yeah. I went. I went to I, when I was doing the camps when I was in college. Uh, the, I met a lot of guys who went to Princeton, Yale, and Brown, and Harvard. You know the the Ivy Leaguers. Mm. I knew a bunch of those. I, I can't remember exactly where I remember the name from, but yeah, I might know him. Ask him. I certainly will. Yeah. No, I uh, I would love to hear more. You said you have endless examples. I would love to hear more, but I know we were talking a bit about the early Chinese exploration of the Americas in one of our prior conversations. Yeah. And maybe if you will, we, 
we could talk about that because, you know, when, when people think of the Native Americans in general, they tend to sort of categorize them in one big group, which is totally inaccurate. There's, you know, thousands of separate tribes and whatnot, but... You know, for the most part, we're given this story that, oh, they all came over the Bering Strait, you know, these sort of hordes of Mongols or whatever, however they describe them, coming over the Bering Strait, right? And nothing else, nobody was taking any boats, which seems to be totally false now based on, you know, the ample evidence of Scandinavian yeah, and yeah. All these other groups coming here, so yeah, you know, I mean, the, and and the idea also that we tend to look at this as a not only a I don't know how you were trying to say that put a uniface on that that we try to put a unitime picture on our idea of Native America without realizing that we got ten thousand years here where we went from a technological society maybe even equal or superior to what we have now that we that disintegrated into the kind of situation where like with the Chinese 90 something percent of the population gets wiped out they had been going from a high technology back to here and then this this threat and then dealing with this and dealing with that and it, it, looking at the the picture of time that existed where the Columbus and the and the new world people started coming here that frozen image of time we can't see that as a uh, what do you call it a is monolithic that no that there's been a lot that went on in in those times, so and it's always a a what contest of not only wills but of the weather of all kinds of things. You know, that come to bear. We yeah we we have a the image that we have and what we've been told uh, they don't match the reality. So much. You want to talk about the Chinese adventure uh, somehow? Well, and and you mentioned Gavin Menzies last time we talked in his books, and I wonder, yeah. you know, how accurate would that claim of the Olmecs, who seem to mysteriously appear at a certain time period? Uh, do you think that they could be some sort of Chinese colony, or maybe a? A group of Chinese people that, that decided, you know, they would visit and got stranded or had, you know, offspring, had children. I mean, how do we explain the Olmec? Well, I don't know where to begin this, but yeah, we, like I was just saying, you know, we tend to, we tend to see this as one place and one time without realizing we got a long time here and we got nation after nation who has come here looking for copper or gold or lumber or whatever they could pretty feathers from South America, slaves, whatever. And time after time, this has happened. And these were real dramas. You know, I was talking about 
all the arrowheads that you find in Ohio and Kentucky, mm. at one time, there were mounds that went for miles and miles and miles up and down the Ohio. And the, the, the civilization of people who, who these mound builders, they grew corn all the way up and down the Ohio and the, and the Mississippi up to the Missouri cornfields. And, and when they, when the Chinese came up the Mississippi, you know, they must've had some sort of encounter with the people there at Cahokia, you know, Cahokia, Mm -hmm. the largest, city in North America at one time. I think maybe Mexico City is now, huh? But at one time that was Cahokia. And these these people who came to these people got corn? They got corn forever. And they got copper up here. We can just move right in and, and we can give them a little dose of the flu and they won't be able to get up and give us much resistance, and we'll just take over. Not knowing that what was just a little bit of flu, the Chinese, because they had been dealing with smallpox for centuries and already had a vaccine developed for it, when they gave it to the population here, I hesitate to use the figures that they use because they they say, you know, 95 98% of the people around the Great Lakes. Uh, but that's devastating. To, to, I mean, that's devastation. And these towns, like Cahokia, when, the, when, when, they, when, when disaster occurred there and people had to leave and seek refuge, they would carry this to another village. So the devastation was extensive. And just just that one just that one event changed the history of the new world. I mean, that was you know the new world was getting up off its knees, and and that that's like a somebody threw a body block you know behind their knees and just knocked them over. So we were in a period of uh, what do you say when you're bouncing back. We were on the rebound, eh? Mm. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the story of Columbus is absolutely ridiculous. But then, if you look at it from, if you look at it from, say, the side of the Vatican, if you can, if, if you can divest yourself of prejudice enough to see that they tried to do the right thing, in that situation, you know, you may never be able to be get there, but they did keep Portugal and Spain from going to war and held together the Christian nations in their struggle against Islam. And when you start seeing things in this way, uh, you begin to make excuses, just like we can make excuses now for the people who are making decisions for us. Huh? Uh, you and I can see that we are faced 
with the situation where we are saddled with basically what was the Nazi intelligence command. Those are the people who are running our secret government. And the president is not even, does not even have oversight. So, you know, and and, and like, like this, this country does not want to go to the world and say, okay, guys, we lied. We didn't go to the moon and we've been stretching the truth on, you know, we can't do that. We have enough vanity to, to avoid the embarrassment of admitting that not only did we lie, but we, we let the, we let the lie stand and did not correct it. And, and now have the hubris to, to lean on that. No, I don't think so. No, but there are, there are reasons why not to, you know, set the story straight and, well, we're dealing with them and the result of that. What do you want to know, Mark? I, I have more questions, but let me <laughs> respond first to to what you just said, because I think you're you're making a really, really great point. And, you know, in this time, people are stricken with fear and they're worried yeah. and they, they <clears throat> can't make heads or tails of, of what's going on because of groups would like rather not would rather hide their heads from it. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, on the point of, of what's important, at least to me, and I hope this audience, and of course I know it's important to you, our earth and the healing of our earth. I've heard certain environmentalists who are very sort of like us in their suspicions for, you know, these global sort of groups suggest that we need to make these landscapes sacred again in order to protect them, not just for political or sort of loophole reasons with the government, but in order to bring attention to what needs to be healed, we need to create new myths, new stories, and and bring back that underlying truth in, in all things. And it seems like that is exactly what they do to us in an inverted way through the media is they give us the, the inverted ver- version of reality focusing on the false rather than the truth so what's what say you to this i mean there's obviously things that should be kept respectfully to those who can cherish it but do you think there's an argument to be made that we need to tell these myths and and re-sake you know recreate the sacred landscape again and and you know rebrand it as such as the very at the very least well, it, it it may be hubris to think that we can recreate this sacred landscape. We don't need to recreate it. It's it, it's already been created. Mm-hmm. We just need to regard it for what it is. It is sacred, and it is sacred and powerful for us in the same way it was thousands of years ago. And your drama, although you're inclined to, to think, oh, it's a simulation and it's, 
it's it's not you know there's nothing real about it in the sense of uh, uh, being a a a brutal drama, but it is. This is a this is real. This is it. <laughs> I, I'm kind of I'm a little struck by what you just said. I'm hoping you're speaking rhetorically and not telling me I'm inclined to believe in the simulation because I I am hopefully a proponent against that way of thinking. I don't know. I mean, not that I am anyone to tell anyone how to well, think, but as I soon, as soon as you put that out there, these these what the guys who paint the who who retouch the photo? Yeah. Yeah. They will they will come in with their neat little lies. They will turn it into a sound bite. And you know, it, it makes anybody who really knows it, 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 it's shameful to be a part of it. So you turn your you turn away from these people who are like say in the in the industry that you you are in, these people who are just making entertainment and they'll sell you anything because that's the name of the game. And so, what they say are just sound bites and and advertising, and they will use the little gems that we come up with to sell their to sell this false currency. Huh? Mm. I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and yeah. I, so, so in in that sense, there are those of us who should keep this to ourselves. If you don't want to be, what is the word? Co-opted. Taken over. Co. If you don't want to be co-opted <laughs> by the opposition, you better keep your mouth shut because they 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 use all of this against you. And that's, that's something else that we need to look at. The English language, my, my mother-in-law used to call it the language of lies. And the reason she said that was because in Diné, you have to say exactly what you mean. You can't, you can't hide behind a generality, beat around the bush, you have to say it, and it takes about three or four times as long to say something in the A because you've got to say the whole thing. In, in English, you can speak in generalizations and not outright lies, but you can fabricate, you, you, you can fabricate, you can hide things. And, and make generalities and come up with a bunch of words that really don't answer the question. Mm, huh? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so what we've done today is we have words like, for instance, the word virtual, and we have turned the meaning around to mean the exact opposite of what that word, what the meaning of that word used to be. Huh? You know what I'm saying? Virtual? Yeah, yeah, explain. Please. You want me to explain? I would, yes, please. Well, virtual means it's the, it's the true thing. Huh? In essence. But but we have come, we have put the title on it, oh, the simulation uh, is the right. real thing. So we now call the simulation virtual. 
<laughs> well, wait a minute. This is the devil at work. Somebody's a liar here. They've turned around uh, the the meaning of this word, and that's not the only one. And and, and we're having that done to us. It, it's like they they go down and move the goalposts at night, huh? Yeah, we'll just say, we we'll change, <laughs> we'll change the definition of the damn word. We'll make the we'll get in line with the law. We'll change the damn law. So that's how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. John D. You know he's said to have communicated with these otherworldly beings, and he knew the power of language, and and partly crafted parts of the English language to, around what he you know learned. I mean, he was very. Uh, instrumental in the empirical mindset that seems to prevail now due to it being hidden within science, this sort of Christian idea of everyone having domain over the earth rather than being a part of the earth. And, you know, on the point of of names and words and the language, I've heard that during the colonial period, Native Americans would change their name based on who was speaking to them because to give away the true meaning of your name was essentially to give away some of yourself, some of your soul, which, you know, that... that power over you. Power over you. Right. And that's really true. I was thinking about that this morning, about how just saying these names... And I was thinking of a couple of people, and I'm just saying how just saying those names opens doors, and 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 people the way they will treat you, and what they open up to you, just saying a little word, just knowing the name of it, it's in using that word, you call forth things. So yeah. Very powerful, and yes, uh, that that's true. You you should not, you should have a name that no one knows. You just heard part three in an installment I'm calling A Message from Turtle Island. All of the episodes will be available for patrons on patreon.com slash mftic. The link is in the description. Part two of this conversation will be available now on Patreon. So sign up today to hear the rest of this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and have a great moment wherever you are in the now.